Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rifka Rivera. And I'm Frank Capello. Hey Frank, what's up? Oh, not much. Uh, just losing hours and hours and hours of my life. I shouldn't say losing. I'm, I'm giving hours of my life to the new Legend of Zelda video game for oh, wow. the, the Nintendo Switch. Yes. Have you heard about this at all? I've heard of it. I didn't realize it was like there there was a moment. Catch me up. What's going oh, on? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a moment. Well... So the Legend of Zelda series is one of the oldest video game franchises. It's one of the best video game franchises um, for the Nintendo system. This is their new game. It's been six years since the last one came out. And the games are just absolutely wonderful, magical, so much fun. I am no longer an avid gamer. I used to be like when I was a kid, I had, you know, like the Nintendo systems. I don't really play video games anymore. But I do play every Legend of Zelda game. Like they are very important to me. Um, what about it? What? Why? It's it's very simple, lovely storytelling to begin with. You know, it's like the hero. Uh, you know, you're on a quest, you're on a journey. Um, but the world, like this, is the the second in this series that they've done since the last game, Breath of the Wild, which is an open world game. So you, basically, you can go anywhere, you could do anything you want. And part of the powers you're given in these games is the the ability to, like, manipulate time and space. You can, like, build shit. You can, like, mm -hmm. you can travel through time. You can, like, manipulate the space around you. It's just very inventive, creative, fun. Like, you could play this game for hours and hours and not actually play the campaign of the game and just be, like, yeah. you know, messing around in the world. It's just, uh, it's so much fun. I've probably logged, like, 20-plus hours so far. Wow. Well, I um, don't play video games, but I feel like my like if I'm losing sleep, I had friend I ne was never in the Vanderpump Rules reality show universe, <laughs> but uh, I had friends who were like, and I was just like, I it just to me that it, that feels like vaping or like picking up nicotine or something. I was just like, <laughs> I had a I was just like, that's the escapism that I'll go. Mm -hmm. There's some shows I can't like I can't do Kardashians. I'm too I just like can't do it. It makes me too nauseous. But I, I did, there was just a lot happening in the Vanderpump Rules uh, universe, and I knew all the drama, and it, you know, I gotta say this, there was, the way in which they edit the storytelling of their, like, it's, a, they just have access to, I think this this is their 10th season, so they have access to so much footage, and I just appreciate as an editor how they'll, like, reference something, then cut to that scene from, like, 2014, they'll be like, you said this, and then they'll cut, they'll oh, have sure. the footage of the person saying it in 2014, it's pretty remarkable, um, yeah, there was, like, a whole, the la it was called Scandoval, Tom Sandoval scandal I, I cheating. I saw you some of this online. Yeah, it's it it crossed it it crossed into the mainstream somehow. It did cross into the mainstream. It was like a big. It was a big thing. It it is just. I guess what I recognize is like in the matrix of like re like that kind of television that you can just like pick up and not put down. You just like it does come pop into your brain when you're like, wait, I don't, I don't want to think about that. I, that was for then, and like I don't know, just in my dreams or like during the day where I'm like, why am I, why am I thinking about this person? <laughs> it's so weird. So that's my Zelda. That's my legends of Zelda for you. <laughs> that's the, that's the narrative you have lost yourself in right now. Exactly. 
And it's it's a time to lose ourselves because there's a lot there's I mean, not to lose ourselves, but it it's tempting. It's tempting. And there might be more reality TV in our futures because this is my segue. The writers strike still ongoing. The writers have been striking for, I think, uh, going on four weeks now. Um, And it looks like some of the other uh, performer or some of the other entertainment guilds are might also be striking so what's been what's happening with with sag because i i my dues have lapsed i have not paid my dues in a couple years so i have (laughs) not kept up i am still a dues paying sag member and so was that one of the more exciting things to do other than you know you go onto your sag website if you're looking for we have a residuals portal so you'll sometimes go on and be like do i have any money coming and of course that's (laughs) Part of the reason to strike is because there's less and less residual payment, um, even though your work might still be making money. Uh, so they just put out a SAG um, authorization to strike. So I voted yes. Like, yes, you're authorized to strike on behalf of my membership as I get. And so this that's the step before actually striking it. So before WG went on, WGA went on strike, all the writers in that guild had to vote yes or no to authorize that strike. So it's a it's an exciting point of solidarity. I think it's really important. I think it would be, you know, the best thing that could happen right now would be for the directors to go on strike, you know, all the unions to go on strike at once. So it's really exciting. Um, and I don't think I've ever... I don't think, I mean, I don't, SAG has never gone on strike, so. I've, I'm looking it up or right have now. They? It looks like the commercial actors went on strike in 2000. So that might have been pre the SAG and AFTRA merger. So maybe that was right, just. Right, that was probably AFTRA. Just AFTRA. Um, and I'm looking back throughout the history. It looks like there's 1952. Oh, no, no, wait, wait, wait. 1986 for 14 hours. Okay. Uh so it looks like 1952 was maybe the last, and uh, forgive me if this isn't completely accurate, but that was m- maybe the last like meaningful actor strike other than the 2000 commercial actor strike. Yeah, definitely not the way that WGA does. WGA has set the precedent no. for really doing the thing. And so it's exciting. You know, this is a time of solidarity for sure. You know, someone explained it to me at one point, and this is maybe a bit reductive, but they they said... This is how the the guilds work in Hollywood. The Directors Guild, they don't need to go on strike because they are the directors. They get everything they want in negotiations. The Writers Guild will go on strike. They have go on strike. They regularly go on strike because their work is taken for granted and they have the collective power to do so. The actors never go on strike because actors just like take whatever the fuck is given to them and just are like, thank you, sir. May I have another? Because, you know, like being an actor is... It seems like a glamorous thing, but it, it in a lot of ways, actors are treated as sort of the most expendable commodity in the entertainment industry. Absolutely. And it's really unfortunate because um, there's this idea that and I think it's been I think it's the same for writers, too. But there's this idea around the arts that like part of your payment is the joy of doing the thing. That like, and you get that constantly like, oh, we're not going to pay you, but um, you'll get visibility. You'll get exposure. You'll get exposure. Like exposure does not pay anyone's fucking bills. Exposure is not a valuable commodity. You know, maybe when you're like, no, it's not. I think if you don't have money to pay actors, you don't have money to make your show. 
if you don't have money to pay the artist, you don't have money to do it. It's different, I think. I'm not saying you can't always. I'm not. There are not other ways around, but I think it's very different if it's a group of people who are coming together, um, creating something collectively. Like there's ways to work around that. I'm not saying money has to be the only means of exchange, but it just blows my constantly where there's this it's almost like passing down the trauma where even people <laughs> where I'm like, wait, what are you asking me to do? You know, I, I just think I I can't if I'm doing a project, it's like I, I feel like you have to pay the actors any pay everyone or you can't do it. Well, there's also such a disconnect between the SAG historically, the SAG leadership and the SAG rank and file members, because unlike the WGA or the DGA, you know, SAG has a ton of members who just are not working. Mm -hmm. They are not working. They have not made money. So you're... But they're paying their dues. But they're paying their dues. And then in order to get elevated to a leadership position within SAG, usually that means you have to be like a somewhat well-known actor. Um, and if you are a somewhat well-known actor, you're now in a different class above the people, above all of the non-working, struggling actors who are the rank-and-file members so a lot of the leadership isn't actually governing in a way that has its members' interest, best interests at heart. I know, I know the last time SAG voted on contracts, they really fucking shivved everybody. They re like mm. I, you know, I, I people lost their health insurance because the minimums got raised. Mm -hmm. They didn't, you know, like uh, they uh, basically caved on a lot of things that really hurt the rank and file. So correct. So it'd be it would be. Very exciting and well overdue for, you know, for maybe a little bit more of a, a, a radical militant SAG leadership to actually, you know, lead people. And for everyone's reference, like our SAG president currently is the nanny, is Fran Drescher. And look, I've talked about the nanny on the show before. I, you know, I, love... I grew, grew up with the nanny. Oh, are you kidding? I absolutely love the nanny. But yeah, and I, I think a little I think she was like the conservative candidate the last time there was a, an election for leadership. I mean, Ronald Reagan was the president of SAG. You know, like that is oh my the history of SAG. We love unions. We love a guild. We always solidarity. But that's not to say that they don't have their own problems and issues and that leadership is very important and that you need constant, um, you need constant participation by the membership. Otherwise, you know, like any institution, a guild or a union can, they can become entrenched in uh, a different kind of class position. So mm -hmm. we'll be very excited to see what happens. And the last thing that happened, this this was a big week. So it was a big week because we're coming down to the wire on like the, the end of Succession, one of my favorite shows. I know one of your favorite shows. Uh, it blows my mind when I find people who have not been watching it and I'm jealous because they'll get to just sit down and binge it. Um, but we just watched the election episode. Yes, and spoilers. We're gonna do spoilers. So if you if you haven't watched, don't wanna just you know fast forward. Fast probably forward. about la, like la, la, five la, la. five six minutes. Yeah, the election episode. What a fucking wild ride. What did, what were your what were your big takeaways? Um. Yeah, it was just like a little. Uh, they they do the reality of the things so well. Like I felt it was very like. Like, the, actually, my favorite episode so far this season was that I, I guess everyone's, I think there was a consensus that Logan Roy's death was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Just because it, they just, like, they get that thing that is so often missed. Like, they're just the way things happen in real time. And yeah, they really captured what it feels like when a person dies. Yeah. And similarly, I think they captured what it feels like when. The, 
we all had something die drastically in 2016. Like there was like a similar ability to get that sort of like where even as the audience, you're like, are they doing this? You're like, oh, wait. Logan Roy's not dying in this episode, is he? Because that would be that wouldn't happen like this. It would happen in like a big grand finale kind of way. And it's just like happening. I felt like a a reminder of the way the shock of that day of 2016. It was just, yeah. So a little stunning and triggering, dare I say. I think you think you very well could. I found it really interesting that a lot of the discourse I was hearing were people saying, Kind of what you're saying, like, oh, this gave me big time 2016 vibes. And it did not for me. It be, mainly because the the Republican candidate character in question, Jared Mankin, played by Justin Kirk, so he's fucking chilling, um, is not at all like Donald Trump. Uh, right, right, right. He is. Uh, this is this is the sophisticated fascist is what this guy is. And while I understand why people felt the 2016 parallels what i was feeling was oh this is the thing that could happen in the future mm. like this is the can this is the actual 2024 2024 whatever but like the actual the competent fascist the sophisticated fascist the intellectual fascist that is so much scarier to me than donald trump who is like the moronic fascist the the fucking bumbling fascist not to say that trump isn't what Trump represents isn't scary and his election wasn't terrifying. That's all true. But this episode was more so for me. I was like, damn, this is, I feel like this was Jesse Armstrong, who is a, I believe a vocal socialist. This was him being like, no, 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 America. This could get worse for you. This isn't Mm. just, this wasn't just an anomalous 2016 election. How could this happen? Where did this guy come from? Like, this is the path that you're on now. And this is where you could arrive in the future. That was my kind of big takeaway. That and that Shiv represented the Democratic Party. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. Which is, I thought was perfect. And I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of liberal viewers missed that. They were like, Shiv is the good one. It's like, no, no. Shiv is also using her outsized power and influence to try to sway a national election in her favor. Maybe her guy is like a little less... Uh, fascisty than the other guy, uh, but she's still. This is still fucking a huge problem that she has this control or this sway at all, and that's the Democratic Party. Yeah, I guess you're right because there was a. It's kind of weird that like there was part of me that's like Connor. Really, they're not just gonna like Connor Roy's not gonna win, and they're gonna like push it to this like. <laughs> I was like really hoping for that, which is you know, just me. Anyone else? Um, but that maybe would have been like that would have been the like very on the nose Trump. Yeah, yeah, version, yeah. you know, and I think you're right that there was like a they they must have known that we were obviously somewhat attached to that that outcome, even though obviously for <laughs> the real world it's not great. But like, I was like, I want Connor Roy to win. That that was really smart. That was much more chilling that Connor didn't, and it was much more devastating and creepy. I don't, and I'm really like, I where are we gonna go? Like, what more can go down? Like, I'm very excited to be like, what the fuck is gonna happen in these next two episodes? Yeah, couldn't tell you. Have no idea. That's one of my favorite. This show is so surprising. It's like, yeah, it's the best. Gonna miss it so much. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we should get to our convo about Parasite. A very good one. I really 
loved re-listening to this as I was editing it. But first, we want to let our listeners know that this podcast is brought to you by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about Parasite with Jessica Burbank. All right. We are now joined by Jessica Burbank. Uh, Jessica does political commentary for the TYT Network, More Perfect Union, and Rising. Is it Rising or The Rising? Rising on the Hill. Rising on the Hill. Gotcha. Um, Jessica Burbank, welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism. It is great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. So a little bit of uh, background for the audience Jess, you and I met on the website, tiktok.com. <laughs> mm. You are, in my opinion, I, I, you're one of the best leftist creators, commentators on there. You have such a wide breadth of knowledge. You have like actual, you have like a degree in economics. Is that, that's correct? Data-driven public policy, which is, it basically ends up being economics. Yeah. Yes. Well, you infuse all of that with like a really... Great sense of humor, making really amazing, digestible content. Um, so I've always been a big admirer of yours. So, like, really quickly, what what got you into this space? What's like, what's a little bit of your background? How did, how have you found yourself here now, recording this podcast with us? Wow, thank you so much. That's very kind. Um, I was uh, one of those people that was a field organizer, like getting people in the streets and knocking doors. Uh, at first it was like, Hey, we're giving so much money to these, you know, contractors like Lockheed Martin and stuff for these foreign conflicts that like, do we really have any business being in? It was trying to get, you know, lower defense budgets and more public spending going to foreign aid. If we cared a lot about, you know, global threats, uh, people didn't really care about that when I would call them or try and talk to them or be like, oh, we have to call Congress about this. And I was like, wow, like we really have no power as organizers. And I was working as a bartender and I was like, well, maybe I'll go to graduate school and that'll solve this problem <laughs> for me, which I really wouldn't recommend. It's by no means a solution, but I learned a lot. And as a, someone who grew up working class, first person in my family to go to college, once I got all of that information, I was like, I have to tell everybody the way this thing is running. I was like, I'm going to tell everyone. And then uh, immediately afterwards, I took a job just as a field organizer, knocking doors for like $27,000 a year on the Bernie campaign. And my friends taking jobs in D.C. and at McKinsey were like, you're insane. Uh, but it was totally worth it. And then the pandemic hit, couldn't do anything in person anymore. So I was like, oh, let's just try this TikTok thing. And I like to have fun. I like to have a good time. So I did it as a skit talking about government spending and money. And the skit, which was like the second TikTok I ever posted, got 100,000 views. And I was like, oh, this is easy. Easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but it is fun. And I've kind of stuck to it. That's inspiring. Thank you. 
So Jess, you chose for us to watch one of my favorites, which I haven't watched since seeing it originally. So I was so happy to get a chance to revisit this Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho, written by Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won, starring Song Kang-ho, Mr. Kim, Jong Hai-jin, Mrs. Kim, Choi Woo-sik, Ki-woo, Park So-dam, Ki-jung, Lee Sun-kyun, Mr. Park, and Cho Yo-jung, Mrs. Park. The budget of this film was $11.4 million. It grossed almost $263 million worldwide. And this was the first Damn. South Korean film to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes Film Festival. Nominated for six Academy Awards and won four for International Feature, Original Screenplay, Director, and Best Picture. And this was the first non-English language film to win Best Picture. So record setting. And this film is a South Korean black comedy slash thriller that follows a poor working class family, the Kims, who scheme to become employed by an upper class, extremely wealthy family, the Parks. The Kims slowly infiltrate the household by posing as an English tutor, an art teacher, a driver and a housekeeper. Everything is going great until they discover the former housekeeper's husband living in the basement. Their cover's blown and the drama unfolds into violent and deadly chaos during a birthday party for the park's young son. God, such... Uh, we'll get it. This is, it's a perfect movie. Perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. A little historical context for when this film came out. So this is 2019. Donald Trump is the president of the United States. In February, he holds a summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Vietnam In March, the 2019 college admissions bribery scandal becomes public, which implicates over 50 people, including actresses Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin. Also in March, Robert Mueller turns in his report on his nearly two-year investigation on the Trump campaign, whether or not they conspired with Russia to interfere in the 2016 election. On July 6th, Jeffrey Epstein is arrested on federal charges of sex trafficking. And on August 10th, he's found dead in his jail cell in Manhattan. In September, Nancy Pelosi announces the start of formal impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump after his, quote, perfect phone call with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. And in December, we get word of the first infections of COVID-19 in Wuhan, China. In case so, that year wasn't crazy enough. <laughs> like Jesus wow. Christ. What a year. It's weird reading it like history now. Right? And there was so many more. <laughs> it just in reading these events, I was like, I cut like 60% yeah. of these. And just a little additional context, because this is a South Korean film, a little bit of uh, information about South Korea at this time. Uh, wealth inequality and the poverty gap index have been increasing in South Korea for a decade, though not as bad as the United States. Um, and to simplify it, if South Korea was a country of 100 people, had a wealth pie with 100 slices, the richest person would get 25 slices of that pie all to themselves, while the poorest 50 people would have to split two slices of pie amongst them. So this is the level of wealth inequality that is happening in South Korea when this movie is written and produced and made, um, which contributes a lot to why this story was told. So Jess, the first thing we like to do to start this conversation is ask our guest, why did you choose this movie for us to watch? It's a very personal question, Frank. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. This movie is so special to me. I don't watch a lot of movies. And I was in such a weird time in my life. I'm not going to tell you everything, but I'll paint a little bit of the picture. So I had been uh, dating this guy that I met at Brown, where I went to graduate school, who said, you know, 
oh, I also came from a, a low-income family like you. And it was also very hard for me to get into school. You know, my mother was a refugee. My father's Jewish. You know, we had a hard time growing up. They're both teachers. And then it comes out that they're actually professors at some pretty big universities and that they live in a very wealthy suburb. And I'm like, something's, you know, not quite adding up. So the pandemic hits and we want to stay together, but we had been working on campaigns and had no place to live. So now I'm staying in his very wealthy family's basement with him. <laughs> and oh, one no. night, you know, we're sitting around the dinner table. His father says some really disparaging things about working class people. And afterwards, I'm like, does he know that how I grew up? that that's my family. I'm like, also, like you said, you were low income. Like, what's going on? You live in this big house in this wealthy suburb. Like, can you just tell me what's happening? And, you know, it comes out that the grandfather has millions of dollars, bought the house. He actually comes from money, went to some of the best schools. And it was, it was a lie. And so I'm like processing this. Like, why would someone I love lie to me about, you know, the most important things in their life? And so one night we all decide to watch Parasite together. <laughs> oh my and God. And I'm just watching it, like gripping the couch. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the movie, uh, the mom, who's a sociologist, goes, well, that's that's exactly what it's like in, in South Korea. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, that's what it's like here. And then within a few minutes says, well, we have to tidy up because the cleaners are coming in the morning oh. without missing a beat. Wow. And it's it was so this movie just like means so much to me. It helped me get through such a weird time. And I recently watched it again. So I was like, we've got to do Parasite. Wow. That is that's <laughs> crazy, right? That's crazy. And I'm so I'm sorry you had to sit through that. But also like that in <laughs> itself is like its own that could be like its own meta parasite. Like, whoa, it's a good story now. Yeah, very upsetting, uh, but also not su <laughs> not surprising, not surprising that, you know, there's a level you need to embrace a level of obliviousness once mm. you reach that higher strata that higher socioeconomic strata because if you don't then you're just faced with like the constant contradictions of your lifestyle and like day in day out mm -hmm. so you you almost have to force some level of like whether it's manufactured or not but like some level of ignorance just to be like that was an interesting movie boop 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 mm -hmm. boop going on with my life <laughs> like that no does not inform my life or perspective whatsoever yeah and just how much of what you it sounds like you were experiencing with those parents was mimicking so much of the behavior of the parks in this film mm -hmm. and how they maintain that level of you know these moments of like oh we're paying you a lot more like we're good rich people we're doing the good rich people things and like that utter okay but i'm going to just like now <laughs> call the person to clean our house and um, also lie about being in a different uh, class than I actually am. Let's get into this movie. So on your rewatch, because there's so much here and I'm so excited about like, especially about the storytelling in this film. Some films, I feel like we talk a lot about the context and the outside and this, it's just like all in there. Um, what were your first? Yeah. What was your first sort of like, I guess, Jess, you shared that it's very personal and you have this revisit. Are there when you rewatched it, were you surprised by anything on a rewatch? Did anything particularly stand out? I think for me, I was thinking a lot about what the the word parasite means in this context, because I think so many people would watch this movie like I did the first time around and think, well, of course, the word parasite is meant to describe the people living in the basement who are 
you know, getting paid by these people. They're kind of, you know, entrenched themselves uh, in these people's lives quite physically, but also like, we're going to lie and say, well, of course I have a background doing this particular skill or whatever, get the whole family jobs in there. It feels like a parasite kind of settling in. But then when you look at these mansions compared to how the majority of people are living, uh, it's pretty obvious that the rich folks are the parasite. And that was just like more visceral for me through, through the second watch. And then I also tried to have empathy for the parks. Like mm. maybe they're just making the best decisions they can with the information they have. But as someone who grew up you know, in a neighborhood of people who are, you know, construction workers, painters, bookkeepers, no one has college degrees, a lot of immigrants. It's like, I have no idea what that mindset could possibly be like. Like, how could you ignore mm. how we live? And I've realized more and more that some people are just like growing up with an idea that some people are worth less. And it's so ingrained in their mentality and they're so okay with it. Uh, and that's that's really wild to me. What about you all? I know you love this movie too. Both of those things that you mentioned really spoke to me. I love thinking, I mean, obviously the title is Parasite. And in this rewatch, I also, I remember, you know, obviously seeing it the first time being like, this is so scathing and giving us such a clear depiction of like class systems and capitalism. And it really goes there. But what I was surprised on my rewatch to find is that I I didn't remember it being such a hopeful movie. Like that was my, the impact this time that I actually found like it was this movie about yeah. um, solidarity, really. And even though that doesn't happen, it almost does at like two crucial points. And my understanding of Parasite this time around was actually in the sense of like, if I take away how I think about or how we're sort of conditioned to think about Parasite as like a bad thing, you know, because it's taking, but that it it's like an in, there's this interdependent system sort of which you're speaking to, like everybody in this structure is a parasite. So they're living in this interdependent system as well, like because capitalism is forcing them to and not in a good, not in a, not in a way that's healthy, but like they're already doing this interdependent thing, like we can all work together. So that is there. You know, so there was the first moment is when um, Moon Guang, who is the original, the old housekeeper that they sort of they put peaches on and they get her ill and she gets out. And she we it ends up being revealed that her husband has been staying in this basement of the house where she had sort of inherit been working for a very, very long time. And we get the backstory that the reason he's there is because um, he had had a Taiwanese bake shop, I believe, that didn't wasn't working and he had to go into debt for that. So mm. so we have that, con which, again, I think is so important because most filmmakers will not give you that context. And without that kind of context, it's so easy to go to our default, which is, well, that's a bad, lazy human being. And I think that's just where the brain goes when you're not given like the nuanced reality of humanity. And so throughout this film, we're constantly given the context of the cap of capitalism. So you're like, that's not because of who he is. That's because he had no other choice. And in that moment, she's like, when they find them in the basement, she says, you know, sis, we she calls her sis and she's like, as fellow members of the needy, please, like we we can help each other out. And you have this moment where you're like, oh, they're going to they're going to rally together and maybe take this down. 
Um, and it doesn't happen. And we understand why it doesn't happen. Like we understand it's not because they're bad people. And then it happens again where the next morning, you know, they were also very drunk because they had stayed the night there. It's also very fun, like living, you know, cosplaying this rich life, like drinking. So they were really drunk that night before the next morning they come back and they're like, you know, that was a little rowdy. Let's give them food. Let's like you get this sense that again, they're like, maybe they'll come together, but it's too late. The damage has been done. So that for me was really jarring this time around where I was like, this is actually a movie about like our potential. And if we wake up to it, maybe we won't miss it. So that was sort of my epiphany this time around. What about you, Frank? Well, first of all, Jess, when you had suggested this movie, I was like, oh, Parasite. I remember seeing it in 2019, being extremely impressed by it. It was right around the time where my political development was going, was moving farther and farther left. So I started understanding these themes about class uh, and wealth and the inequality that lies therein. But when you suggested it, I was like, oh, man, Parasite, it's such a heavy movie. And I was like <laughs> so pleasantly surprised in this rewatch to be like, no, this is like a very entertaining like fast-paced upbeat for the most part film so like just on its on its face this is a perfect movie like it's the the narrative structure the performances the direction it moves so effortlessly and i was in i was like so enraptured the entire time i completely agree with everything both of you said about the way that it depicts the parks and their disparaging opinions and views of poor working class people and how gross that is. And man, I remember one time I was arguing with someone in my family about, uh, we were arguing about fast food workers. And I flat out was just like, do you believe that someone who works what we consider a full-time job at a fast food restaurant deserves the income to support a family? And my family member was like no they shouldn't and i was like that is such horseshit mm -hmm. that is such fucking horseshit because you agree that it's you like fast food right you agree that it's a, a necessary business people we enjoy doing it so if it's a necessary business then the people who work there should be able to live a life of dignity and respect and afford their basic necessities so like it nails this and then rivka to speak to what you were saying it humanizes all of the like the working class, the 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 Kims and the housekeeper and her husband. It it does such a great job at humanizing every aspect of them. Um, one of the touches that I loved is you know when when we meet the Kims in their basement, you know it's like they set it sets up the desperation of their conditions perfectly. Like they're all they're they're climbing on top of each other to try to find the Wi-Fi. Uh, you know, they're all folding pizza boxes for money. They allow the fumigator to basically poison them so that they can get free extermination. Um, but a really small detail, they show Mrs. Kim's uh, medal from when she used to do hammer throw. Oh, wow. Which I, which I thought, that. yeah, which I thought was such an important detail because it just, it's just telling you people who live in poverty, they're not they're not worthless people and they have, they had a whole life and they, they had moments of, of potential great heights. And just because, you know, a, a person might've found themselves in poverty at this point in their life doesn't mean that they are, that they are inherently a worthless person. I Which mean, it seems so obvious when you say it, Frank, but I just think it's startling how much storytelling misses that point. Just like misses that, like where you're just like, Oh, you didn't think to give it. And they're like, well, we couldn't give the context. So we didn't, you know, we just, so yes, I just, I agree with you, but I, it's amazing how many stories just don't do it. 
or oversimplify the way that poverty is depicted in in film and television. This movie is like a parable about class antagonisms, and I thought it kind of did such a good job at representing that. You know, obviously, like the the Parks are the wealthy family, the Kins are the the working class family, but then they have this moment of almost solidarity, but then they end up tribalizing themselves against the housekeeper and her husband, which is a very common thing that will happen within working class communities. You know, it's, you know, they keep us divided and it's more common for the working class to fight amongst themselves than to really find that solidarity and to fight against the ruling class. So Jess, how did you feel about like the, the class antagonism aspect of this film? Yeah. I'm reflecting back on the, original person who is living in the basement whose name I don't remember it's hard to remember names when it's subtitles but um who was in debt and worships Mr. Park right he's he kind of prays to Mr. Park and hits his head against the wall and it's a, a whole thing it's almost like all right the Kim family is is pit against uh the original housekeeper who's allergic to peaches and her you know spouse and that's almost like, okay, we're competing for resources. Mm. But then it's also like, we have this very different view of our relationship to the parks and your relationship to the parks. And maybe your your guys' idea of what the parks are means we can't work together to fight against them. Mm. And so I thought that was really interesting. And uh, I can draw a lot of parallels between that kind of thinking and like the progressive movement in the United States, how there are so many people who see the working class, uh, even if they, they grew up working class or they, they really believe in wealth redistribution and they believe in equal opportunity, they still have disdain towards working class people or maybe people who are like, no, if we work really hard, we'll do well, like capitalism's fine. And it's just this disdain in, of, of the ignorance. And so it's people who uh, really are like, well, I've got it figured out. And so, of course, I can't work with these other people. It's like, no, those are precisely the people that I think of Plato's allegory of the cave that we've got to bring out of this cave. And and I guess it kind of is a cave because he's underground, but uh, <laughs> really drag him out and be like, hey, like, this is how it is. We're being oppressed. We've got to set things right. But because we see ourselves as not only in competition from people we have a, an aligned cause with, but uh, we just see them as, oh, they're too far gone. We'll never convince them. And I don't really want to hang out with people like that. It's really causing so much division in what could be a unified movement. And so I thought the microcosm in the movie movie did a really good job depicting that. Yes, absolutely. And just and how heartbreaking it is that even until his death, as he looks up at Mr. Park, who's about to stab him and he says respect and Mr. Park doesn't. He's like, do I know you? I mean, brilliant. And chilling. It's giving Elon Musk. It's giving Elon Musk. It's giving Bezos. It's giving all of it. Um, even in that context, what I loved about that, like, given all of that, had there not been enough detail and backstory and understanding of, like, the context that these characters are living in, it would have been so easy to judge that character as, like, he's crazy. You know, mm -hmm. and I think what was so brilliant is like it was really hard to judge any of these characters in that way for me because you understood like, oh, if I was in that position, I don't know that I could fully like I would I see the moments where I could do something differently. But you also can 
empathize and relate to like that is so extremely hard they need they need to do this together that was sort of like my feeling well they also they show another way that the kims are all humanized in that they are pretty regularly displaying empathy towards everyone else including the parks <laughs> um you know i think it's like somewhere where somewhere around when they all are first hired by the parks uh, I forget who says it. Someone says, you know, like Mrs. Park, she's very nice. She's very nice for a rich person. And then someone else is like, well, she's nice because she is rich. And the line that they say is, oh, uh, they say that when they're drinking, when yes. they're like on the couch drinking and they're having this great conversation. Yeah. Yes. And then I think it's uh, Mrs. Kim who says money is an iron and all the creases get ironed out. So they even have like a little bit of empathy for the parks who up until this point i guess have just been their employers and for the most part have been nice but it's not until uh it's not until the smell comes in which is mm. such again this movie is fucking perfect and like all mm -hmm. of the metaphors are like a little on the nose but it's like executed in such a perfect way where you don't even mind it so it's not even a metaphor no it's just gonna be like it's like that's not even it's just so real like the smell is not a metaphor it's like that's real pun intended with on the nose there frank <laughs> i hadn't been uh but now that you mention it the puns just they come out naturally but yeah it's it's when it's when the the family the park family starts to realize that all of the kims share the same smell and this becomes a recurring theme of the smell and then i think at one point mr park says it's the kind of smell you would smell on the subway and i think mrs park is like oh, i haven't been on the subway in ages but I just thought it was such a brutal observation and characterization of these people. And it also ends up like playing out throughout the entire film and ends up being the catalyst for uh, Mr. Kim stabbing Mr. Park at the end. Yeah, I guess we just jumped to the to the ending part because the, the ending, the, the whole way that the birthday party unfolds, there's so much that happens there. I'm curious, what, but like, what do you think it was that, really drives Mr. Kim to to kill Mr. Park in the end? It's such a good question. I mean, when they're talking behind that bush, it's almost like you can watch Mr. Kim's face reach the breaking point where he's like, you know what? Like, fuck this guy. <laughs> uh, it's like he's made to choose between uh, his family's lives and Mr. Park's family's lives. And he was like, you're out of your mind if you think I'm sacrificing literally everything for you. And I think you can see Mr. Kim react really negatively every time the smell is discussed, that there's some kind of, right? Because he was accidentally eavesdropping when they were talking about the bad smell. And so to be talked about in that way, I'm sure he had like a little seed of disdain, but everything reached a boiling point, I think just before. Uh, and I think it had been building for a while, but he was like, you know what? I hate this man now uh, to put me in that position. It's ridiculous. And I can kind of like relate to that sentiment of, oh, these people, you know, they smell and they're this and they're that. Because like growing up and then working in the service industry, it's so clear where the lines are drawn between the people that are intended to serve those who have resources and who have money and who can afford to go to nice restaurants and all of that stuff. And just feeling like you're the help. Like, is this all I'm on earth for is just to be of service to these rich people? And it's like, something's wrong with that. 
uh, fundamentally. And I think a lot about who are the kind of people that are really in tune with that and who's not. And I think the people that are entirely ignorant of how our society is set up with this inequity baked in, the people that are just like, yeah, this is how it is. I'm okay with it. That's a terribly antisocial attitude, I've decided. Most people, I think, have this natural inclination of like, we're supposed to take care of each other and work together. That's what's going to lead to human beings continuing to survive on that planet. It's in fact necessary for us to cooperate to address these problems. So the people who don't have a sense of that, it's almost like they haven't necessarily evolved as you mm. know they need to for us to continue to survive. And when you tie that in with, you know, some study of anthropology, it is the case that every evolution of the Homo sapiens killed the previous evolution. And I'm not preaching any kind of eugenics. I'm just <laughs> saying there could have been something <laughs> primal there that like this person has terribly antisocial views. They don't even have empathy for me. My family's getting hurt. It was just like, what kind of a person is this? And just so much anger personally between the two of them. Yeah, I I love the smell as a device um, for all the reasons that you both just said. And it's so it's so visceral, like what it does for us as an audience member to think about. And I'm thinking about like as a New Yorker, I think that's it's like one of those things that we don't talk about is like the different smells of people. And then this idea that like we all wear deodorant to like cover how we smell and this part of just like this repression in society of like your humanity should be covered up. And we've all decided like this is what smells good, even though we know throughout our history as a species like that's I'm sure what's been in fad for like what smells good has changed. But it's another way that we decide who, you know, classify people and then particularly like that build for his character, which was so beautiful and fascinating i think the first time he hears it's what yeah when he's eavesdropping under the table you know he's he's in a close-up in frame and he's just like slowly pulls up his shirt to smell it and the way he crafts that build like as it moves on i think like the last like one of the straws was that he's taking her around for you know the child's birthday party and mrs park is in the back with her feet up in his face which i'm sure her feet smell one of our greatest modern memes that yeah. exact job <laughs> yeah yeah. That shot, exactly. And um, her smelling him and lowering the wi the window, um, which is interesting because she didn't smell him. But, you know, it's like all of a sudden I think when someone sells, says something smells bad, also like how that catches on. But just as a New Yorker, I'm thinking like, uh, you know, just how when you're like part of the thing I love being in big cities or in proximity with lots of different, you just it's like a joy to get to smell all different kinds of smells and be around all different kinds like why would you want to just have one smell of like, this is it, like this scent? It's like part of what makes us living amazing. You know, it's like taste and it's like, not that I want to see freaks right now. I'm like, I'm going to go and smell all kinds of things. But you know what I'm saying? Like smell is underrated as a scent. Just rip because I'm the subway sniffing people. <laughs> this explains so much as to why you're just constantly. <laughs> why am I was like, can I smell you? You drive by sniffing people? Yeah, no. yeah. I'm, I'm smiling because I know exactly what you're talking about. And I love summer in New York so much because we're all just like sweaty, gross animals. And just we like yes. have to just be out in these places. If you can't afford an Uber or Lyft everywhere. You're riding the subway. You're walking around the street. It's just like you get to this point where everyone is just if you like go to a bar. You're like, you're sweaty and gross. Yes. You're sweaty and gross. We all smell bad. We are all here. We are all human. 
friends. It's like it's the the end and if I like your smell, like we're vibing. I'm attracted to you. It's yes, great. It's, it's beautiful. This is what the elites are missing out on. I. This <laughs> yeah. is what I'm saying. Do you know what was a wild moment that I did, didn't remember from my first watch, but was when the Kims are hiding under the coffee table and the Parks are the Mr. and Mrs. Parker on oh, the couch yeah. and they start. Uh, having sex and then their kink is to pretend that they are poor, that they mm-hmm. have drug problems. Um, that was a really not very like, well. Let me tell you, if you're gonna role play, like no, do it, yeah. <laughs> act the part, donate your wealth. Uh, no, that was yeah, that was a great moment. I wanted to ask about this moment because it was sort of this is also in the progression of I think you pronounce it key tyke the Mister. Kim, the father's progression. This is like after that, after they're, they make it out from under the table um, and they go home and their home is flooded from the torrential rain and they end up um, in like a relief center. It's a gymnasium and he's lying next to his son who is holding on to the rock, like the, the rock from the prophetic rock from the beginning. And he says this whole thing with his hand, just like with his arm covering his eyes so just so simply, but his arm is covering his eyes and he says, you know what kind of plan never fails? No plan at all. No plan. You know why? If you make a plan, life never works out that way. With no plan, nothing can go wrong. And if something spins out of control, it doesn't matter whether you kill someone or betray your country. None of it fucking matters. And I'm just curious what your th- I still don't know fully how I felt about the, like what that moment or that message was, but it was so pivotal and so moving. So I'm curious what you thought of that moment. Yeah. It the the rock thing as well, right? Yeah. It's this idea of we have these tokens and icons and things that we just want to believe in something because materially things aren't working out. Like we need some kind of hope. And I remember so many times throughout my life being like, yep, you know, I'm I'm always gonna be stuck doing this thing that I hate, like nothing's going to get better, bad things always happen, and being like, you know what? Maybe I I never had a plan at all. Maybe I'm just vibing. Maybe I don't care what happens next. It's like a convenient story to tell yourself when you're living in a world that's not made for you to to succeed. So I, I kind of took it as a cope, or it could just be a beautiful way to live your life, right? I'll take what comes to me. I'll go where the wind blows. And I'm happy no matter where that is. Like, that's very beautiful and very zen. It could also be a cope. I'm kind of stuck between the two. I kind of read it as Mr. Kim had just lost hope at that point. You know, they just had suffered so many losses. And this is also right after the the giant violent altercation with the housekeeper and her husband. And then they and then their apartment is flooded. They lose everything. And now he's He's like, we don't make, like, you should make plans. You think all these people in here planned on sleeping on a gymnasium floor tonight? Like, no one planned on this. So I I read that as Mr. Kim having completely lost hope in this moment. Um, But Jess, I I think that's right on with The Rock in that, like, his son is clinging on to something. And that was something I didn't really pick on. I was like, why is he fucking holding this? He just really loves this Mm -hmm. rock. But I think that's right. I think, like, it was the one piece of potential hope. I mean, when they're when he's given the rock in the beginning, his friend Min, who another piece of shit in this movie, uh, says to him, you know, this rock is supposed to bring material wealth for a family. So I think, and again, another perfect on the nose metaphor. But yeah, I thought it really played out throughout the film. And so then at the end, he ends up right 
the the father ends up living back in the basement and they're speaking to each other through most Morse code and the son writes him a letter saying I have this plan and there's this like dream plan that he's going to just start earning you know just you know what I'll actually decide to start earning like it's a choice and buy the house and you'll come and it's so be- you know and you're moved by it you'll come out and you'll find me and and mom and we'll be there waiting for you and then um and then we know that that's that's the letter that hasn't happened. It's sort of like a dreamy sequence. But I'm I'm curious, like the POV of the fit, like what did you feel like that that overall ending meant, especially in the context of like a plan? Like, do you think that plan's going to pull through? Like, what was it? Or did you? Yeah. What were your thoughts on the end where it left you? The ending was necessary for that movie to even get screened in the United States of America. Is how I feel. <laughs> 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 we have to also say that, like, if you work really hard, there's still a chance you're just a temporarily inconvenienced billionaire. Uh, and so I, a part of me when I first saw it, I was like, God damn it. Like, why can't we have anything purely anti-capitalist? Why does it have mm. to end with this, you know, hope of like, if I work hard, I'll be like them. But upon second watch, it was just clear to me that what he was describing was not possible given everything we've been shown. And so it becomes this like, oh, that's the sad story everybody tells themselves to keep going. And so that's what I got from it. But I don't think we would have gotten that movie in America without that scene. I agree. Uh, the, the the placement of that scene was important because they show basically the fantasy of the son doing it, of him becoming rich, of him buying the house, liberating his father. So there's like this metaphor of, you know, wealth is the only way to liberate the impoverished people in your life mm. or, you know or rectify these these injustices. But then it cuts back to him and he's still in the, the semi-basement and he's still, he's just writing the letter. This fantasy isn't real. So I, I, so I agree, Jess, I thought like you need a little bit of that hope for that US audience, but also they, I, to me, it was like, this is just a fantasy and this most likely will not come to fruition. I was so happy it and no, I was so happy that it because I had forgotten how it ended and it, that happened and I was jarred like, no, 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 like that's not how it ends. So when it wasn't that, I was like, oh, thank God, I didn't think so. But like that was a fantasy that wasn't real, right? And of course, yeah, and and I felt, I think I felt, I, I guess I'm still like, what does it mean, like not making plans? But it's such a beautiful paradox of like, where where does that leave us? That I think just like ultimately we have a power as humans, but that power is going to be found in each other and not in like our individual plans and pursuits, perhaps. Before we get to awards, yeah, I just want to ask because this, I want to ask your thoughts on like, this came out at such an interesting, I mean, as we saw from our um, history on it, an interesting moment in time. We're just about to get into the pandemic, but also like, I feel like it was the beginning of a lot of, films sort of approaching more stories about class or we're seeing more stories about class and particularly like narratives later coming there was that moment in time where everyone's like we're doing all these scammer stories but just we're approaching more stories about class and there and it is interesting that this was like so lauded everybody it was unanimously like loved and it was so 
like, yes, does everyone see it? Like, you know, and speaking to your experience too, Jess, of like, yes, it's right here. Are we going to do something about it? Or, you know, um, just your thoughts on like the con that moment in time and when this came out and like people's reactions to this film and did it meet any of your hopes or expectations? I think this movie coming out as a movie now based in the United States made it a little bit more palatable. But then I started mm. watching more during the pandemic because we're, you know, inside all day. And uh, I watched Altered Carbon, which had a lot of anti-capitalist, you know, anti-elite critical, you know, commentary about severe inequality. And I was like, how do they get away with this being the highest uh, funded Netflix series at the time? And uh, it was right after I'd watched Parasite and I was like, they're really just selling the revolution back to us. If they can mm. make it some abstract idea, not based in the U.S., some fantasy world, we're less likely to believe that's happening here because it's something that happens in these other fantasy worlds. And it's like, in that sense, are they are they programming us to think in that way? I don't know. Uh, but it is definitely the revolution being sold back to us. And it's almost like the elites that fund these things because people who have tons of money can afford to make movies and approve scripts and stuff. It's unfortunate how much power capital has over media in that way. But it's like, I don't know. They're just, okay, okay, you'll watch it. You'll you'll get really excited about it. But I don't believe you'll do anything. It's almost like very in your face. Like, I dare you. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that's how I feel about it. Very conflicted. Same. We've talked about this a lot on the show of it's the Mark Fisher capitalist realism quote about, you know, the, these certain forms of media, art, film, television perform our anti-capitalism for us and thus give the audience a false sense of accomplishment or like participation. And I, I am equally con conflicted about it. I, I'm I'm glad that these stories exist because I'd rather they exist than not exist. But I do think it, there is it does run the risk of, like you said, the revolution just being sold back to us and someone watching it and being like, wow, I understand that things are bad. Now I will go to the mall and continue my life. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, this is the point in the episode where we like to hand out awards for this movie. Uh, we got three awards. The first one is called A Point with a View. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. Well, I know what I was thinking of, and now I'm like, oof, I'll just go with my gut. I'll just say it, because I was going to say Moon Guang, which I know is she was the original housekeeper, because I did find that moment super earnest. Like, I just thought that she was like, we're both in this needy class like yes her husband was like respect and i worshiping but like there was that moment where i was like i really bought that she was like we could work together i bought it and had some kind of consciousness of that and for that reason and then she just gets taken out pretty quick in pretty and she gets she gets brutal you know doesn't look fun to have a peach allergy so i'm giving it to moon guang i agree with you just for that moment where she's the one who tries to forge a little bit of solidarity before I mean, she ends up ultimately turning on the Kims and black trying to blackmail them, but... Right. I have to say Jessica. Not because we share a name. Um, <laughs> oh. So, yeah, the Kim family daughter. Because she was the orchestrator of infiltrating the family. And so I find that to be very useful, right? That's good politics. Yeah. Very utilitarian. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a good one. All right. Our next award is Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in 
the movie. I think I got to go with just Mr. Park on this. I feel like it feels like an easy one. I mean, he's not like the worst capitalist in the world. Like he's not, you know, abusive or destructive, but he's just got such a shitty attitude towards uh, to the people that work for him. Yeah, and he's pretty bad. I mean, I thought what was interesting in the in the Park family was like they did also make a point to show the hierarchies in that family and how terrified she was of her husband. I mean, I think at one point she's like, I, you know, the secrets they keep. And she was like, don't tell him because he'll like something, something equivalent of like chop me up. Like she was like, if he finds out, he'll like chop me up and strangle me like oh. something vicious. And then like there's that weird moment where he just like, he's like, love her. Ha 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 ha. Like. It's like weird with them, like the subtext. So I just I appreciated that like it was clear that he was like not as nice as I think he appeared perhaps and also like maybe slightly sadistic. So I give it to him as well. Yep. It's got to be Mr. Park. He's the worst man. It's easy. They make him so easy to dislike. Yeah. And our final award is A Star is Scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. I'm gonna give this to Jessica because yes, I could take a whole movie. I mean, I guess <laughs> she dies, but like resurrect her <laughs> or give us the afterlife or anything. I just loved her. She was my favorite. I want a story about the son who draws a lot. The only name I remember is the one who <laughs> shares the name with me, but uh, da I really do. Because, da song. Yes. So critical of everything that's going on around him. Is a pacifist to some extent, passes out <laughs> in the sight of violence, but also critical of his parents seemingly. And he has anarchist vibes. I want a story of, you know, what he grows up to do. That's a really good that. one. And and it's interesting because he is the he is the only one who sees what's happening, right? Like he sees what's going on when like his the things are happening around and every other character is blind to it. Mm -hmm. so, so he's like a truth agent. I would want to see like the prequel movie about the Kims, specifically like the Kim children, because it seemed like they contextualized their lives. And, you know, the son was like he had the potential to go to university and Jessica had or uh, Jessica had the potential to become like this great artist and was taking lessons. So I, I, I was like so curious about that of like, like, how did we arrive at this point? Like, how did we get to the beginning of the movie? So. All right, well, that is it for the awards. For our listeners, if you have any ideas for new awards, you can email us at moviesvscapitalism at gmail.com. So before we wrap up, Jess, we like to discuss with our guests how, as people, we strive to practice our values, our anti-cap values in our own lives, even with all its complexities and contradictions. So is there any one thing or a few things that you do that you'd like to share? It's such a good question. I make a lot of skits about anti-capitalism. Uh, <laughs> no, my whole thing is uh, I I talk about politics with my family. And uh, it's not even like we grew up in a political household. We definitely didn't. Uh, hardly talked about the news or politics. But uh, and a lot of people tell you not to. But your family are the people who trust you the most. And everyone's like, God, I hate talking about politics with my family. But. If you feel a certain way about what's going on in the world, I promise you, if you make a case uh, for, you know, with me and my mom, who she was a bootstraps person, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If, bootstraps, if you work hard, you'll do well. Uh, and we shouldn't have any handouts type of situation. 
And I was like, listen, like you worked hard your whole life, right? She's like, yeah, of course, really hard. Uh, I hardly knew my parents until uh, they got much older and I was able to spend time with them because they were always working. So I'm like, of course, the answer is going to be yes. And it's like, but you're not doing well. Like, it's still hard to keep a roof over the head, still hard to pay the bills. We don't know how retirement's even going to happen for you and dad. It's like, why do you think that is? And just being really open-minded and just asking some questions and tying it to their lives and their interests, which you will know better than anybody else. It's your family. So as much as we say, you know, don't talk about politics with your family, talk about politics with your fucking family. Like these are the people you're going to win over. And she was a registered Republican when we had that first conversation and ended up uh, voting for Bernie Sanders in the primary and is completely like on our side of things. And I think that's beautiful. So it goes against what everybody tells you to. Don't do it at the Thanksgiving dinner. Do it one-on-one, but have a really heartfelt conversation about politics with your family. I love that. Fucking great one. Nice work. Yeah. That's awesome. Jess, where can our audience find you and your work? On the internet. K.A. Burbank. Just search Jessica Burbank. TikTok, Instagram, Twitters, Substack. Amazing. Well, thank, thank you so, so much, much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Appreciate it. Thank you for doing Parasite. I'm glad we had this chat. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that information at NBCPod.com. And for next week's episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Rather than talking about a movie, we will be discussing the series finale of the Emmy Award winning HBO show, Succession. Woo! Thanks, everyone. Bye.